We are in part two of Muhammad and Islam. Last week we talked about it from a historical perspective. Our goal this week is to talk about it more from a theological perspective. And it was an interesting week. I got an email from Andy Birchfield, a lawyer friend of mine who teaches a class at church uh, uh, in his home in Alabama. Good Christian brother. And he said, Mark, I'm studying Matthew 7.15, considering false prophets or false teachers among us today. What message or messages do you think have the greatest tendency to keep people from genuinely following Christ? And so I immediately pulled up Matthew 7.15 in the English and the Greek. And because we're life group Greek people soon, I, like you, was stunned by that word beware, which in the Greek is prosekete. Prosekete is an imperative. It's telling you to do something. It's saying, beware of this. Look at this closely, is the instruction Jesus is saying. And so I emailed him back, and I said, Andy, uh, let's see. In America, I think most people are so wrapped up in themselves that any message that caters to the individual, what we already think, what we already like, what we find self-satisfying or self-approved is one that resonates as truth, even though it may be false. We have a generation that measures truth by their own experience and feeling rather than an objective measuring rod like Scripture. This is truly sheep's clothing. It's what folks want. And it's why we have to prosecute. It's why we have to be aware of it. We have to look at it carefully. And I use that as the introduction in class because as Christians, I think we're charged to look carefully for truth. I am a firm believer. As Christians, we need to be investigators for truth. We need to look carefully for truth. We need to, 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 to search for it as a goal. Now, I will also tell you that as I do that in my life, it confirms for me the claim our Lord Jesus made, I am the truth. Because I find the truth of life expressed in what Jesus said and who Jesus was and is. If we look carefully at the truth, we're going to see that Islam and Christianity are very different. There are some very huge, central, core differences. And if you're not looking carefully, you may not see them. Janet Seifert provided me these pictures, A and B. These are pictures of what happens when the seed breaks its shell, and emerges. And those first two, they're not genuinely leaves. When those first two sort of leaves come out, so many plants look just alike. A and B. A grows up to be a sunflower. B grows up to be a massive tree. You've got to look at them carefully and explore how they grow and what logically follows 
And what may look so similar on its face winds up being vastly different in reality. And that's true with the difference between Christianity and Islam. Now, let's talk about it for a moment. Islam, right up above what I've put is Allah in Arabic. Allah in Arabic, that big, you read it right to left. The big long stroke is the ah sound. It's the Arabic equivalent of the Hebrew Aleph, if you remember your Hebrew alphabet. And then you've got two L's. It looks like, well, it looks kind of like a W, except the last tail on that W is is going to the last letter, the H sound, the A-H sound. So you've got A sound, L-L sound, and then an A-H sound, Allah. The marks above are just kind of a vowel sounds and, and a guttural stop tells you how to pronounce it of sorts. So that's Allah in Arabic. Allah in Arabic means simply the God. Arabic is an ancient language of Semitic heritage, like Hebrew, like Syriac, like Aramaic, that's a whole family of languages that those of us from Western civilization don't readily grasp. But Allah is the Arabic equivalent of the Hebrew word El, which means God. In the Hebrew Old Testament, it's generally Elohim. It's written in a plural form, though it means a singular God and uses a singular Verb. So, El, Allah, is just the Arabic word for God. If you are an Arabic Christian, a Christian who speaks Arabic, when you speak of God, you speak of Allah. That's the word for God. Now, I was asked by Melna Moriarty. She said, okay, I read last week, but I missed last week in class. She said, I want you to answer this question. I want you to be clear. Is the God of Islam the same as the God of the Bible? And I said, well, it depends on how you want to answer the question. I will tell you that the God that is set out in the Quran is not the same characteristics, the same nature, and the same acting God as we read about in the Bible. But I can answer it the other way and tell you that, and and this is the truth, Muhammad did not teach Islam as if it's a brand new religion. Muhammad taught, and his followers today teach, that Islam is actually restoring the original religion that got polluted and lost. And so Allah is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael, Joseph, Mary, 
Jesus. But Muhammad and Islam teach that the Christians, for example, have distorted who God is and turned God from one into three and elevated Jesus to a position of Godhood that Jesus did not have on his own. And it's not real. So is Allah the same God, the Allah of the Muslim faith, and the Allah of a Christian faith? It depends on how you want to answer the question. In the Muslim thought, Allah, God, is the God of the Old Testament and the God of Jesus. But as that God is revealed in the Muslim writings, he is revealed in a different light, in some profoundly different areas. So, Melna, I don't know that I can get any clearer than that. That's the best I got. So I want to look carefully for truth, and I've segregated out some different areas we should consider. Let's look first at the names themselves. Islam and Christian. Islam is an Arabic word. The Arabic and Semitic languages, which is Arabic, Hebrew, Palestinian, Aramaic, uh, uh, lots of old, ancient, now dead ones. Syriac is still alive. Uh, the dead ones, you can go back to Ugaritic. You can go back to, to, to all of those West Semitic languages that are now so dead and gone. They were all built around the same general ideas, including three consonants. Three consonants form the root of almost each word group. And then you just tinker with those consonants to change it up some. So you take the consonants S, L, and M. Now some people say S like a snake. And some people say it like a, a drunk. But it's the same S sound. So S and SH sound the same. All right? So S, L, and M is its own word group. S, L, and M mean peace or submission. So if you meet a Hebrew and he says to you, S, L, M, shalom, he's speaking to you a greeting of peace. And shalom can be hello, and shalom can be goodbye. But shalom is S-L-M, peace. That is also Islam in Arabic. It means peace, it means submission. Now in Arabic, if you add an M to the front of a word, it references someone who follows that word. So, if SLM, Islam is peace, then a Muslim is someone who follows peace or submission to God. 
So a Muslim in Arabic is someone who follows Islam. Peace. Make sense? Now, Christian. Christ. Christ is the Greek word that means anointed. It is an Old Testament concept that is expressed in the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew. Messiah. And so Christ is by that portion of a Christian name. Christ is Messiah, anointed of God with all that is expected of the Messiah in Scripture. Now, when you add I-A-N to a word, you have an uh, you have taken Christ and you have turned it into someone who follows him, a Christian. In Acts 11.26, we're told that in Antioch, the Christians... The believers, the church, were first called Christians. It's the first use of the word. Christianity as a word was first used by Ignatius around 105 AD. And I put that side in your lesson. We studied him in this church history vignette we've been doing. So Christianity means someone who follows Jesus as Messiah. Now, that should be shalom... We are also, as Christians, people of peace. And our peace with God is not found anywhere except through Jesus Christ. And that's why Christian is the name we wear. And we wear it proudly because it shows our submission to God's redemption in Jesus. So, that's names. Scripture. The words that were delivered supposedly to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel, Muhammad committed to memory and recited. And those after Muhammad wrote down what Muhammad had told them. And it is in the Quran. You Used to, a lot of people used to spell it K-O-R-A-N, more correctly spelled Q-U-R, apostrophe A-N. The Quran. Christian scriptures, the Holy Bible. Now, what does the Quran say about itself? The Quran says the revelation of the book in which there is no doubt from the Lord of the universe... Do they perchance say he made it up? No. This is the truth from your Lord. So this is, the Quran is written. The understanding of the Quran is, this is a word for word in classical Arabic language. Deliverance of the message from God through the angel Gabriel to Muhammad, Muhammad, who then recited it for others to write down. That is different than Christianity in transmission 
and as a result, a little bit in effect, but not really. Christianity teaches, as Paul referenced in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all of Scripture is inspired by God. And the word inspired there means God breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed or inspired. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But you'll see in Romans, Paul will reference the fact that God entrusted to the Jews the Old Testament. And the understanding from Christianity is... That the Bible is God's perfect word, but it's God expressing that through the human efforts. So that you've got Paul's personality in his letters. So that you've got room for people uh, uh, over time to, to make a mistake when they're making a hand copy. God doesn't deliberately guide every pen. And, and yet the original, as God delivered those words to the autographed copies, we fervently believe that that was inerrant in the sense that it conveyed the message of God as God wanted it, down to the jot and tittle. But sometimes, for example, Paul's writing to address a specific problem. And we're not being intelligent readers if we read it as if Paul's writing it simply for us. That's how you take passages out of context. Oh, Lord, teach me what to do. Judas went and he hung himself. (laughs) We've got to use our heads as we do this. So that's a back door of scripture. Now let's talk about Jesus for a moment. And here we're starting to get into some critical differences. The Quran says a lot about Jesus. Jesus is named in the Quran 69 times. The Quran is not a collection of books like the Bible. The Quran is one book. It's divided up not into chapters, but into shuras or suras. There are 114 what we would call chapters. Written in classic Arabic. And as a result, it's not even considered proper by most Muslims to translate it into another language. You would be stunned at how many Muslims cannot read their scriptures in classical Arabic any more than you or I would be able to read what was the parent language of English if we go back and look at it as it was written in 650 A.D. So the Quran, though, in the process of it, talks about Jesus a lot. Let me give you some of the passages. Well, let's hold on to there. Let's go to the Elmo. Let me give you some of the passages of Jesus. Chapter 2. Verse 87, and I'm calling it a chapter and a verse for lack of a better way of, so that it's clearer to those of us who are non-Muslims listening to this message. Okay, can you, can you see that? 
Here's what it says. We gave Moses the book. And we had messengers follow up after him. And we gave Jesus, son of Mary, clear proofs and strengthened him with the Holy Spirit. Later on in this chapter, 136. We say, say, we believe in God and what was revealed to us. And what was revealed to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes. And what was given to Moses and Jesus. And what was given to the prophets from their Lord. If you look in chapter 3, or Shura 3, 45 through 47. By the way, all right, let's see, 45 through 47. I need to make that just a little smaller. The angels said, Oh Mary, God gives you good news of a word from God named the Messiah. Jesus, son of Mary, honored in the world and the hereafter, and one of the intimates of God. He will speak to the people in infancy and maturity and be one of the righteous. She said, my Lord, how can I have a son when no man has touched me? Thus does God create at will. When God decides on something, God simply says to it, be. And it is. It teaches the virgin birth of Jesus. But I'll tell you what else it says about Jesus. It... um, says, let's go back to the PowerPoint. Let me put it up this way so you can see it as well. It says Jesus clearly is not God. In fact, Jesus gets chided when he gets to heaven because he kind of claimed to be God on earth a little bit. And God says to him, you know, you really kind of messed up on that one. But Jesus doesn't fully confess. It's an interesting read. And Jesus in Islam and in the Quran does not die. For anyone's sin. Doesn't happen. If you read what the Quran says about Jesus. Look at it in Surah 4, 157. And on account of their saying. We killed the Messiah Jesus. Son of Mary. Messenger of God. Whereas they did not kill him. They did not crucify him. Although it was made to seem Thus to him. And for those who differ on this, they're certainly in doubt about it. They don't have any knowledge about it. They're only following conjecture. For surely they did not kill him. Instead, he just died on his own and God raised him up to the divine presence. Now, that's very different, obviously, than what Scripture says about Jesus. Scripture's references to Jesus are innumerable to me because we can find how many times his name is mentioned in Scripture. But Jesus is called by so many different names and there are so many Old Testament prophecies about the one who is to come that how you wind up counting Jesus is near impossible for me. But it's very clear that Jear in the New Testament is pre-existent God 
And it's very clear that Jesus is the necessary atonement for humanity's sin. That's what makes him Messiah. That's what we're saved from. Our sin. And this is a huge difference between these two faiths. And, and, and it's so fascinating to me. The, the Muslim faith will totally write off the writings of Paul. In fact, they'll write off much of the New Testament and much of the Old Testament. Anywhere it conflicts with Muslims' Koran, they say, well, that's just where the, the, the Bible's a corrupted text. So, for example, here is the Christian-Muslim dialogue. This is a, a, a tract of sorts put out by a Muslim trying to convert Christians. And um, um, I want to show you, because I want you to see in their words, rather than me putting words in their mouth. Okay, this, I'm at this little point three, which is actually point eight. You just can't see it because of the way this is stapled. And this is uh, uh, point eight. The Holy Spirit is supposed to glorify me, Jesus said. And then, quoting John 16, 14, then this writer says, actually the Holy Quran and the prophet Muhammad, praise be unto him, have more reverence for Jesus, praise be unto him, than the Bible and Christian themselves. Let me clarify. Look at A. To believe on his death, Jesus' death on the cross, discredits Jesus' prophethood. According to Deuteronomy 13.5, that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. That's a false prophet is to be put to death is the passage. And then it also stamps him as accursed, may Allah forbid. According to Deuteronomy 21.22-23, he that is hanged is accursed of God. Someone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. So this writer is saying, of course, Jesus could not have died. That would make him either a false prophet or a cursed of God. And how could he be accursed? So while Islam says Jesus didn't die on a cross, Islam is lifting up Jesus over what you Christians do. But this is a person who's never read Galatians and doesn't understand the core of the Christian message. Because Jesus is the necessary atonement for humanity's sin. What Paul says in Galatians 3, 10 through 14, is this very issue. See, one of the reasons Paul wasn't a Christian at first is for the Muslim, though it hadn't come around yet, argument. How could Jesus be a, a God and the Son of God and blessed by God? He was hung on a tree. Deuteronomy says, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. That was an argument in Paul's day. That was an argument. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and said, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to Jews. Because Jews are sitting there saying, hey, wait, how does he die on a cross? That can't be right. Paul explained it, though, in Galatians 3, in an incredible passage that is so important. So important to us. Because it, it is the Christian message. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
anybody who thinks they are blessed by God because they're good enough or they're doing the right deeds are actually walking under a curse. It is written in the law. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Anybody in here ever lived perfect? No. We're all under a curse. Now, it's evident no one's justified before God by the law. The righteous live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. This is the core difference. Look, God is 100% pure. And in Christian doctrine, God does not change. He's the same today as he was yesterday, and he'll be the same tomorrow. 100% pure. And there's not a human being that has ever existed, save the Son of God himself, who lived a sinless life. So now you've got a choice. You can say, oh, well, God's just going to put it in scales and let it weigh out in the end. Well, that's not biblical, and that's not God. Well, God's just going to have mercy. God is merciful. But his mercy cannot discredit his character and his justice. Hear me. It's a loaded sentence. It's a critical sentence. God is merciful. But his mercy cannot discredit or alter his character as a just God. So the mercy of God needs to find a way to take care of our sins in a just fashion. And that is by paying the price himself, which is the core of the Christian gospel. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, the difference between Jesus is something really to look at carefully. Now, we also need to look carefully for the truth in conversion. In Islam, faith in Allah and Muhammad as a prophet is a critical first step. It's the first pillar, the profession of that faith. But this is not a salvation from sin. Islam doesn't have a basic doctrine of, of original sin. It doesn't have a basic doctrine of all human beings being sinful, of being born into a sin nature, Larry. It doesn't have any concept of that. Islam teaches you got a choice. You can choose. And I don't understand that because I have experienced the bondage of sin. That is a bondage that doesn't really leave me a lot of choice sometimes, it seems. At least until God came into my life with the Holy Spirit. So, there's no salvation from sin in Islam. Salvation is by works. I mean, it's, it's Surah 16, 111. It's pretty clear. Surah 16, 111. We, there we go. 
One day, every soul will come and debate about itself, and each soul will be paid in full for what it did, and they will not be wronged. And there's not the mercy that goes with that from the perspective of God paying the price. All right, biblically, salvation is by grace, by it's a gift of God through faith. It's not by works. Christianity teaches a just salvation from sin. By the way, it's going to be one of our life group Greek uh, classes on, on words of justice and righteousness. But anyway, it's another month away. Christianity teaches a just salvation from sin. We're not just saved because God was in the mood to save us. We're saved because he justly saved us. We can rely on it because it's not up to the whims of his mercy. It's not up to how good we are. It's entirely based upon something historical he did on our behalf. And if you take away the death of Jesus on our sin, for our sins, we're stuck with them. And I don't see how the Muslim world gets out from under the burden of sin, except just to say, God's gonna just let it be for some who are working hard enough to earn his mercy. Worship in church. Okay, look, I, can I run five minutes over? I'm sorry. Worship in church. Okay, for the Muslim world, worship is prayer. If they came to our church service this morning, they would think they got in on a concert. They got in on an interesting discussion group. And we put in a little bit of worship in the middle with some of the prayer. Worship is prayer. Once a week, there's generally a lecture. A good Muslim is going to pray five times a day. They will go pray corporately and worship. And once a week, there's generally going to be a lecture. It's not a big deal if you make it or miss it uh, by most Muslims' concepts. Uh, some are more devoted than others, and as it is with church. Church, for the believer, is both worship and fellowship. We come together as a corporate whole... Not only to worship the Lord, which we do not simply in prayer, but we do in song. We do it in prayer. We do it in exposition from the word. We do it in communion, something the Islam does not have. We do it in tithing, which is in a sense done by Islam as well. And one of the five pillars. So it's, it's a very different worship scene and a very different church scene. Righteous living. Five pillars of faith for the Islam world. A good Muslim will live by these five pillars. The first pillar is the declaration of faith in God and Muhammad. The second pillar is to pray five times a day. The third pillar is to give two and a half percent of your savings to the poor and the needy. The fourth is you fast during the daylight hours during the month of Ramadan. And the fifth is at least one time in your life you're supposed to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Those are the pillars. Now, within the framework of that, there's a lot of other do's and don'ts. You're not to consume alcohol. You're to eat meat that's been sacrificed, been, been uh, declared holy and dedicated to God before it was butchered. Lots of little things like that. For the Christian, holiness is more than a list of do's and don'ts. Holiness is something very important to us, not to earn credit in heaven, not to get God's love, but because we understand he made us that way, and that's how we walk blessed in his will. 
Holiness is very important, but it's not just the list. It's the condition of the heart. I'm not supposed to only not commit adultery on my wife, but I'm expected not to commit mental adultery as well. I'm not only not supposed to kill someone I don't like, I'm not supposed to have a mental or emotional hatred of them in my heart. It's more than a list of do's and don'ts. It's a holiness. Now, lots more could be said, but I'm out of time. So um, here's what I'd like to do. I want to give you these points for home and urge you to read the lesson because I put a lot more in the lesson. Um, We have about 40 copies of last week's lesson as well on the back table if you did not get one. I mean, there's so much stuff. I'd wish. For example, Christians are... It is against Christian doctrine to fight a war over faith. The Baptists cannot rise up and go kill the Methodists. It's just not a just war. Thomas Aquinas defined a just war. Other theologians have tweaked it. But a just war, by definition in the Christian faith, cannot be won over faith. I can't do this. can't be go kill a Jew day. So many Jews are believers. On the other hand, with Islam, you remember Muhammad Ali was a conscientious objector to Vietnam? Under the Muslim faith, the only war you're allowed to fight is a religious war. You're not allowed to fight any other kind of war. And that's why when you've got ISIS fighting against the other Muslims and and Christians and everybody in the Middle East right now, they declare it a holy jihad. Because the only kind of war they're allowed to fight is a religious one. So anytime any of of them go to war, they're going to call it a religious fight. When the cynic might want to say, color me cynical, the cynic might want to say, that's your excuse for doing what you selfishly want to do in your battle. All right, points for home. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Folks, I can't say it any more plainly than I try to every Sunday. We need to be students of the word. I'm so excited about going deeper. I promise you, you won't have to really learn Greek. I promise you. If you will come to this Greek class, we will dig deeper. Pastor David said to me on the phone, our theme for the fall is going deep. What are you going to teach? I said, what do you think about this Greek thing? And I've already sent him some of the lessons. He is so stoked about it. He may be in here. You're going to really like this. I want to diligently study for truth. Not to confirm what I already believe. For truth. You know, when I read through the Muslim stuff in preparation for this class, my prayer to God was, God, let me see this truly. If the Muslim faith's right, open it up to me. But every page I read, I thought, boy, these people do not understand the basics of our faith and and God. And I can't go there because it just doesn't make sense. I'm I'm digressing. Point next. I want to remind you of the gospel on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, by this good news, you are saved. Here's why you're going to heaven, Paul said. Christ died for your sins. According 
to the scriptures. It had been prophesied ahead. You've got to tear this book apart. Oh, man, I totally left out. Golly, we're out of time. You've got to read the sections I put in the lesson from St. John of Damascus. This was a Christian who was writing about Muhammad's heresy at the time. He, he was born 20 years after Muhammad died and lived in the Middle East in, in Muhammad and Islam-controlled lands. And it's just fascinating to read his write-up of what he correctly says is a Christian heresy. Islam is not a new faith in that. It's a heresy. It's the Aryan heresy. But that's all in him. Okay, last point, and I've gone way over time. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, that is the Christian faith. You can't be a Christian without that. I don't see how you, I don't see how you can believe in Jesus and strip him of the very thing he came here to do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Have this same attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself to the point of death on a cross. Philippians 2. I want to live that. That needs to be where I live. Can I bless you in this, please? Lord, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless and keep all of my friends and family here. Keep their hearts keep their minds, keep their bodies, draw them close to you, motivate them to study your word and truth. Father, may we show through love and compassion to the Muslim world and to all the incredible good news of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, that you have loved us with a tender mercy that is not a compromise to your character. And may we show that love to the world through Jesus, our Lord and risen Savior. Amen.